Philippians 2, I'll pray, and then I will give a little bit of an explanation as to what we're doing this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for access to your throne through Christ. Thank you for the indwelling spirit who every minute of every hour of every day is in communion with you and leads us into communion with you. So thank you for Christ who purchased our access and thank you for the spirit who leads us always into your presence. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the preaching of the word. Thank you that you, through Christ and by your spirit, continue to speak to us through your word. So, again, Lord, we place great value on the time that we spend in your word each time we gather. So, we pray to give thanks and we pray to plead as well that you would speak once again. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you know, especially if you were here um, last night, or if you've really spent, hopefully, any time in a Protestant church whatsoever, that October 31st marks the anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. And I'm sure that you're also familiar with the five solas that kind of commemorate what the Reformers recovered during the uh, Reformation in the Reformation. And you're probably, if I were to just peg each one of you and say which one stands out, more than all the others, my hunch is the, uh, the leading one there would be justification by faith, by faith alone, that justification by faith has been called the article where the church will stand or fall. And Martin Luther discovered, at least for himself, and I would say recovered for the church, the doctrine of justification by faith in the text that Chris read this morning, specifically Romans 1 and verse 17. It was in that passage that Martin Luther read, realized, recovered that righteousness is not something that's achieved by man, but something that is received from God to man by faith. So each year since really Christ Fellowship has been in existence, we've marked, commemorated, celebrated the Reformation, um, mostly by joint services on off nights with sister churches. This morning, we wanted to uh, hopefully, possibly start a tradition here to, to have our own Reformation Sunday, as many churches do, on the Sunday closest to October 31st, which is this year, November 3rd. And this year, we want to commemorate, remember, thank God for the Reformation by letting one of the Reformers speak once again. This morning, that Reformer is Martin Luther. It's a very popular sermon of his that's called Two Kinds of Righteousness. And there's a lot invested in scholarship of Martin Luther, his 
works, people who've just poured their lives into him, who debate whether or not this sermon, Two Kinds of Righteousness, is um, intentionally meant to contrast a sermon that we know he preached a couple of years earlier called Three Kinds of Righteousness. This was a a pre-Reformation, a pre-light bulb going on for him through Romans 117 sermon that he preached called Three Kinds of Righteousness. Those kinds of righteousness, those three righteousnesses were, in that sermon, civic righteousness, intrinsic righteousness, and thirdly, imputed righteousness. And there's um, a lot of importance to the ordering of those three kinds of righteousness. Just process that. Civic righteousness, intrinsic righteousness, lastly, imputed righteousness. So justification by faith just explodes in Luther's mind And he preaches in 1519 this sermon called Two Kinds of Righteousness. And the way that I want us to process this this morning is not not to be in awe of this historical artifact that's just been preserved for us, to be refreshed and challenged by a preacher of the word and just hear how saturated with scripture this sermon is and be challenged by it, get saved through it if need be and be changed by it brothers and sisters in, in Christ. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse, verses 5 and 6. Brethren, have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness. Just as a man's sin is of two kinds, the first is alien righteousness. That is, the righteousness of another, instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies us through faith, as it is written in 1 Corinthians one thirty, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, Christ himself states, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Later he adds in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. This righteousness then is given to men whenever they are truly repentant. Therefore, a man can with confidence boast in Christ and say, Mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking, his suffering and dying, mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's and she all that is his, for the two have all things in common because they are one flesh, Genesis 2 and verse 24. So Christ and the church are one spirit, Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 32. Thus the blessed God and Father of mercies has, according to Peter, granted to us very great and precious gifts in Christ. That's 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This inexpressible grace and blessing was long ago promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3, and in thy seed that is in Christ shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us, it says, because he is entirely ours with all his benefits if we believe in him, as we read in Romans 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Therefore, everything which Christ has is ours graciously bestowed on us unworthy men out of God's sheer mercy, although we have rather deserved wrath and condemnation and hell also. Even Christ himself, therefore, who says he came to do the most sacred will of his father, John six thirty eight, became obedient to him. And whatever he did, he did for us and desired it to be ours, saying, I am among you as one who serves. Luke 22 and verse 27. He also states, this is my body, which is given for you. Luke 22 and verse 19. Isaiah 43 and verse 24 says, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Therefore, the apostle calls it the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by his faith. Finally, in the same epistle, chapter 3 and verse 28, such a faith is called the righteousness of God. We hold that a man is justified by faith. This is an infinite righteousness and one that swallows up all sins in a moment. For it is impossible that sin should exist in Christ. On the contrary, He who trusts in Christ exists in Christ. He is one with Christ, having the same righteousness as he. It is therefore impossible that sin should remain in him. This righteousness is primary. It is the basis, the cause, the source of all our own actual righteousness. For this is the righteousness given in place of the original righteousness lost in Adam. It accomplishes the same as that original righteousness would have accomplished. Rather, it accomplishes more. It is in this sense that we are to understand the prayer in Psalm 30. In thee, O Lord, do I seek refuge. 
Let me never be put to shame. In thy righteousness deliver me. It does not say in my, but in thy righteousness. That is, in the righteousness of Christ my God, which becomes ours through faith and by the grace and mercy of God. In many passages of the Psalter, faith is called the work of God, confession, power of God, mercy, truth, righteousness. All these are names for faith in Christ, rather for the righteousness which is in Christ. The apostle therefore dares to say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He further states in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 17, I bow my knee before the Father, that he may grant that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Therefore, this alien righteousness instilled on us without our works by grace alone, while the Father, to be sure, inwardly draws us to Christ is set opposite original sin. Likewise, alien, which we acquire without our works by birth alone. Christ daily drives out the old Adam more and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. For alien righteousness is not instilled all at once, but it begins. It makes progress and is finally perfected at the end through death. The second kind of righteousness is our proper righteousness. Not because we work it alone, but because we work with that first and alien righteousness. This is that manner of life spent profitably in good works. In the first place, in slaying the flesh and crucifying the desires with respect to the self, of which we read in Galatians 5 and verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In the second place, this righteousness consists in love to one's neighbor. And in the third place, in meekness and fear towards God. The apostle is full of references to these, as is all the rest of Scripture. He briefly summarizes everything, however, in Titus 2 and verse 12. In this world, let us live soberly, pertaining to crucifying one's flesh, justly, referring to one's neighbor, and devoutly relating to God. This righteousness is the product of the righteousness of the first type. Actually, it's fruit and consequence. For we read in Galatians 5 and verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For because the works mentioned are works of men, it is obvious that in this passage a spiritual man is called spirit. For John 3, 6 we read, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. This righteousness goes on to complete the first, for it ever strives to do away with the old Adam and destroy the body of sin. Therefore, it hates itself and loves its neighbor. 
It does not seek its own good, but that of another. And in this, its whole way of living consists. For in that it hates itself and does not seek its own, it crucifies the flesh. Because it seeks the good of another, it works love. Thus in each sphere, it does God's will, living soberly with self, justly with neighbor, devoutly toward God. This righteousness follows the example of Christ in this respect and is transformed into his likeness. It is precisely this that Christ requires, just as he himself did all things for us, not seeking his own good, but ours only. And in this, he was most obedient to God the Father, so he desires that we also should set the same example for our neighbors. We read in Romans 6 and verse 19 that this righteousness is set opposite our own actual sin. For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. Therefore, Through the first righteousness arises the voice of the bridegroom who says to the soul, I'm yours. But through the second comes the voice of the bride who answers, I am yours. Then the marriage is consummated. It becomes strong and complete in accordance with Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. Then the soul no longer seeks to be righteous in and for itself. But it has Christ as its righteousness and therefore seeks only the welfare of others. Therefore, the Lord of the synagogue threatens through the prophet. And I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, Jeremiah 7 and verse 34. This is what the text we are now considering says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 and verse 5. This means you should be as inclined and disposed toward one another as you see Christ was disposed toward you. How? Thus, surely, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Philippians 2 Verses 6 and 7. The term form of God here does not mean essence of God because Christ never emptied himself of this. Neither can the phrase form of a servant be said to mean human essence. But the form of God is wisdom, power, righteousness, goodness, and freedom too. For Christ was a free, powerful, wise man, subject to none of the vices or sins to which all other men are subject. He was preeminent in such attributes as are particularly proper to the form of God. Yet he was not haughty, 
in that form. He did not please himself, nor did he disdain and despise those who were enslaved and subjected to various evils. He was not like the Pharisee who said, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men. Luke 18 and verse 11. For that man was delighted that others were wretched. At any rate, he was unwilling that they should be like him. This is the type of robbery by which a man usurps things for himself. Rather, he keeps what he has and does not clearly ascribe to God the things that are God's. Nor does he serve others with them that he may become like other men. Men of this kind wish to be like God. Sufficient in themselves, pleasing themselves, glorying in themselves, under obligation to no one, and so on. Not thus, however, did Christ think. Not of this stamp was his wisdom. He relinquished that form to God the Father and emptied himself unwilling to use his rank against us, unwilling to be different from us. Moreover, for our sakes, he became as one of us and took the form of a servant. That is, he subjected himself to all evils. And although he was free, as the apostle says of himself also, he made himself servant of all living as if all the evils which were ours were actually his own. Accordingly, he took upon himself our sin and our punishment. And although it was for us that he was conquering those things, he acted as though he were conquering them for himself. Although as far as his relationship to us was concerned, he had the power to be our God and Lord. Yet he did not will it so, but rather desired to become our servant. As it is written in Romans 15, verses 1 to 3, we ought not to please ourselves. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. The quotation from The psalmist has the same meaning as the citation from Paul. The apostle means that each individual Christian shall become the servant of another in accordance with the example of Christ. If one has wisdom, righteousness, or power with which one can excel others and boast in the form of God, so to speak, one should not keep all this to himself but surrender it to God and become altogether as if he did not possess it. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. As one of those who lack it. Paul's meaning is that when each person has forgotten himself and emptied himself of God's gifts, he should conduct himself as if his neighbor's weakness, sin, and foolishness were his very own. He should not boast or get puffed up, nor should he despise or triumph over his neighbor as if he were his God or equal to God. 
since God's prerogatives ought to be left to God alone, it becomes robbery when a man in haughty foolhardiness ignores this fact. It is in this way, then, that one takes the form of a servant. And that command of the apostle in Galatians 5 and verse 13 is fulfilled, through love be servants of one another. Through the figure of the members of the body, Paul teaches in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27, how the strong, honorable, healthy members do not glory over those that are weak, less honorable, and sick, as if they were their masters and gods. But on the contrary, they serve them the more, forgetting their own honor, health, and power. For this no member of the body serves itself. Nor does it seek its own welfare, but that of the other. And the weaker, the sicker, the less honorable a member is, the more the other members serve it. That there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, to use Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 25. For this, from this it is now evident how one must conduct himself with his neighbor in each situation. Whenever we, on the ground of our righteousness, wisdom, or power, are haughty or angry with those who are unrighteousness, foolish, or less powerful than we, and this is the greatest perversion, righteousness works against righteousness, wisdom against wisdom, power against power. For you are powerful not that you may make the weak weaker by oppression, but that you may make them powerful by raising them up and defending them. You are wise, not in order to laugh at the foolish and thereby make them more foolish, but that you may undertake to teach them as you yourself would wish to be taught. You are righteous, that you may vindicate and pardon the unrighteous. Not that you may only condemn, disparage, judge, and punish. For this is Christ's example for us, as he says, For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3 and verse 17. He further says in Luke 9, 55 and 56. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But the carnal nature of man violently rebels, for it greatly delights in punishment, in boasting of its own righteousness, and in its neighbor's shame and embarrassment at his unrighteousness. Therefore, it pleads its own case and it rejoices that this is better than its neighbors. But it opposes the case of its neighbor and wants it to appear mean. This perversity is wholly evil, contrary to love, which does not seek its own, but that of another. It ought to be distressed that the condition of its neighbor is not better than its own. It ought to wish that its neighbor's condition were better than its own, 
And if its neighbor's condition is the better, it ought to rejoice no less than it rejoices when its own is the better. For this is the law and the prophets. But you say, is it not permissible to chase an evil man? Is it not proper to punish sin? Who is not obligated to defend righteousness? To do otherwise would give occasions for lawlessness. I answer, a single solution to this problem cannot be given. Therefore, one must distinguish among men. For men can be classified either as public or private individuals. The things which have been said do not pertain at all to public individuals, that is, to those who have been placed in a responsible office by God. It is their necessary function to punish and judge evil men, to vindicate and defend the oppressed, because it is not they but God who does this. They are his servants in this very matter. As the apostle shows at some length in Romans 13.4, he does not bear the sword in vain, etc., But this must be understood as pertaining to the cases of other men, not to one's own. For no man acts in God's place for the sake of himself and his own things, but for the sake of others. If, however, a public official has a case of his own, let him ask for someone other than himself to be God's representative. For in that case, he is not a judge, but one of the parties. But on these matters, let others speak at other times, for it's too broad a subject to cover now. Private individuals with their own cases are of three kinds. First, there are those who seek vengeance and judgment from the representatives of God. And of these, there is now a very great number. Paul tolerates such people, but he does not approve of them. When he says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful Rather, he says in the same chapter, to have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. But yet, to avoid a greater evil, he tolerates this lesser one, lest they should vindicate themselves, and one should use force on the other, returning evil for evil, demanding their own advantages. Nevertheless, such will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless they have changed for the better by forsaking things that are merely lawful and pursuing those that are helpful. For that passion for one's own advantage must be destroyed. In the second class are those who do not desire vengeance. On the other hand, in accordance with the gospel, Matthew 5 and verse 40, to those who would take their coats, they're prepared to give their cloaks as well. And they do not resist any evil. These are the sons of God, brothers of Christ, heirs of future blessings. In Scripture, therefore, they are called fatherless, widows, desolate, because they do not avenge themselves. God wishes to be called their father and judge. Psalm 68 and verse 5. Far from avenging themselves, if those in authority should wish to seek revenge in their behalf, they either do not desire it or seek it, or they only permit it. Or if they are among the most advanced, they forbid it and prevent it, prepared rather to lose their own possessions also. Suppose you say, such people are very rare. And who would be able to remain in this world were he to do this? I answer, this is not a discovery of today. 
that few are saved and the gate is narrow that leads to life and those who find it are few. Matthew 7, verse 14. But if none were doing this, how would the scripture stand which calls all the poor, the orphans and the widows, the people of Christ? Therefore, those in this second class grieve more over the sin of their offenders than over the loss or offense to themselves. And they do this that they may recall those offenders from their sin rather than avenge the wrongs they themselves have suffered. Therefore, they put off the form of their own righteousness and put on the form of of those others praying for their persecutors, blessing those who curse, doing good to evildoers, prepared to pay the penalty and make satisfaction for their very enemies that they may be saved. Matthew 5, verse 44. This is the gospel and the example of Christ. Luke 23 and verse 34. In the third class, are those who in persuasion are like the second type just mentioned, but not like them in practice. They are the ones who demand back their own property or seek punishment to be meted out, not because they seek their own advantage, but through the punishment and restoration of their own things, they seek the betterment of the one who has stolen or offended. They discern that the offender cannot be improved without punishment. These are called zealots in the scripture Scriptures praise them. But no one ought to attempt this unless he is mature and highly experienced in the second class just mentioned. Lest he mistake wrath for zeal and be convicted from, of doing from anger and impatience that which he believes he's doing from love of justice. For anger is like zeal. And impatience is like love of justice so that they cannot be sufficiently distinguished except by the most spiritual. Christ exhibited such zeal when he made a whip and cast out the sellers and buyers from the temple as related in John 2, verses 14 to 17. Paul did likewise when he said, Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21. It's the end of Luther's sermon. And with it, I want to close with two questions based upon it. I want to ask, first of all, does the order of your theology of justification reflect Pre-Reformation Luther, so civic, intristic, and then imputed? Or does it reflect this order here? First and foremost, imputed. And then flowing out of imputed righteousness, our proper righteousness. In our language, you would ask, what are you trusting in for your standing before God? Your, your own righteousness? 
or the righteousness that we would argue Scripture teaches is God's own that you receive by faith alone, through grace alone. If it's not this righteousness, then I want to use Luther's sermon as an opportunity to call you to repentance from trusting in your own righteousness to earn you right standing before God and to trust in the righteousness of Christ is the sole basis for your justification. And secondly, I want to challenge those of you that would claim the right order. Imputed righteousness leading to a life of proper, actual righteousness in real life. I just want to challenge you. If that's your claim, are these works of love and sacrifice and bearing, legitimately bearing others' burdens being reflected through you. And that's actually the note in which I want to close in prayer that that would be the reality. This is a drum that we've been beating a lot lately. That our theology would be overflowing into it a life of practice, and that's what Luther's arguing here. So as you're thinking about that, I'm going to pray to that end and give you a time of reflection, and then we'll come back and sing, You Alone Can Rescue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for Jesus. Thank you that the righteousness of God was revealed in him and nailed to the cross in our place, taking all of our sins and all of the wrath that our sins had earned upon himself and giving us right standing, full justification in your presence both now and forever. What a gift. Thank you also that this gift now by the power of The indwelling spirit is intended to be reflected in everyday life and works of loving sacrifice and bearing of burdens for the sake of our neighbor and the crushing of those sinful desires that still wish to flare up and dominate because of the bodies that we live in and the world that we live in. Father, my prayer for Christ fellowship is that our firmly continuing to hold to this article on which the church will stand or fall 
would be preserved and reflected through the members here. An unbelievably sacrificial, intentional, generous, spontaneous, planned works of love toward each other and toward our neighbors. I pray this in Jesus' name.